Hey there, product security pros, David and Shlomi here. Hosting the Left to Our Own Devices podcast has been a privilege. During the past two years, we had the opportunity to chat with top product security minds from the likes of CISA, the FDA, Boston Scientific, Jaguar Land Rover, and many others. 20,000 listeners and 50 plus guests later, we thought it was time to take things to the next level and launch the first virtual conference for product security. Left to Our Own Devices, the conference. Join us on April 3rd, 9 a.m. EST for fascinating and practical sessions from the world's top product security minds across industry, government, and academia, entirely online and completely free. KPMG, Showstack & Associates, OpsRight, Valentium, and ASRG have already joined as partners or speakers. To sign up for free and save your spot, go to cybellum.com conference. That's C-Y-B-E-L-L-U-M dot com slash conference. See you there and enjoy the show. You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. So our guest today is Anthony Fernando, president and CEO at Ascensus uh, Surgical, an incredible company that is uh, reimagining how surgeries are being done. Anthony is a, is a veteran of the medical device industry, having held key positions uh, at Stryker, uh, Beckton Dickinson, uh, Perkin Elmer, and more. We're very, very excited to be talking to him today about one of the most fascinating fields in the medical device industry these days. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shlomi. Glad to be here and looking forward to it. So please give us some background on, on how you worked your way up to being the CEO of such a visionary company as uh, Census. Yes, you know, uh, Census is a technology company and I started off as an engineer. Uh, started off as an engineer initially in the, in the robotic space, but in a very different industry, uh, in the nuclear uh, waste uh, handling uh, industry working uh, as part as a contractor for the U.S. government uh, and then kind of got in more and more interested in the life science uh, and medical technology and uh, started uh, working my way through different industries in life science, then moved down to medical devices in engineering roles and then engineering management roles and then some more uh, roles that crossed business and technology and then, uh, you know, came on to this this role at, at a census uh, about eight yeah cl- close to eight years ago I joined us uh, do some MNA work for a census then uh, moved into uh, became the chief technology officer for a few years then became the chief operating officer and then took on the CEO role in uh, 2019 so it's been a, a journey for 15 20 years in the same in, in similar industry though yeah, but it, it sounds like you've gone through just about every position uh, in in working your way up, and you're really learning in the trenches, you know, the industry and uh, all about medical devices. Yeah, it's uh, two twofold. I think different technologies they have a different take and a different meaning and different challenges. But then, on the other hand, I was also very fortunate to work in different parts of the world. You know, started my career here in the U.S. Then had the opportunity to spend some time in uh, Europe. Uh, and then I actually lived in Asia 
based in Singapore for almost eight years. So that took me all over from, you know, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, India. Uh, and you see the challenges that different parts of the world have in healthcare and in medical devices and how technology is used very differently in different parts of the world. So it's very fortunate to be able to be a technologist and also be and have the ability to see the different geographies and the different challenges and, and be able to uh, put it all together. Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure that's definitely helping you out in the role that you have now as a CEO of uh, Census. So maybe you can please give our listeners a quick overview of the new era in minimally invasive surgery and what that means for patients. Yeah, great question. And it's a very fun uh, journey uh, that we are on. So when you think about surgery, I'm, I'm going to take a step back before I kind of go forward. So when you think about surgery, historically, surgery was open. You cut open the abdomen or whatever that you're looking at, and then the surgeon can actually look into your abdomen and see what's happening. Uh, that was predominant for a very long time. Then in the early 80s came this technique called laparoscopy, uh, which moved surgery into a minimally invasive uh, technique where it's also known as uh, keyhole surgery. Uh, and the best analogy that I've heard uh, that some people use is saying that, you know, think about painting a room in your house through the mailbox. That's uh, kind of how uh, uh, the analogy goes. So I, I think it, it explains how it's done. Uh, but I think that was a huge, uh, it made a huge impact on the patient population. It reduced complications, reduced invasiveness, uh, and patients could go home faster. And, and a lot of good things happened with laparoscopy. And then in the uh, early 2000s came robotic surgery. And, and what robotic surgery did was basically taking that minimally invasive technique and putting a robot behind it so that the robot was manipulating two instruments or three instruments and a camera. And the surgeon was uh, comfortably sitting at a console not too far away uh, from the patient. So it, it was still more of a analog relationship, but using technology because the robot manipulated the instrument based on the surgeon command instead of the surgeon manipulating the instrument directly standing next to the patient. So what we are trying to do is saying, what's next? And, and as we know, the digital technology is evolving and advancing in all other industries. You have self-driving cars, you have robots doing manufacturing, you know, you have fighter planes that are designed to be unstable and the computer makes it stable. So you see all these technologies in all the industries, but it has not come to surgery yet. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to take the next step and take this manipulation, robotic manipulation to the next level and to use digital technology where the surgeon can get real-time information from the surgical field, more like a surgical GPS. It could be like a digital assistant, if you call it, but in real time. So the surgeon now knows, what am I doing? Uh, you know, what do I need to look out for? 
what might be some potential risk or complication that might happen and also think about saying okay i'm one surgeon but i wonder how the tens of thousands of surgeons all over the world have done this and how successful have they been so say, you know can i can i look at the best practice can i look at what the best thing a best approach to this situation and leverage that in real time uh, and by doing that surgeries can be made consistent because currently as you know no two surgeons are alike and no two patients are alike and no two surgeries are alike so it's trying to bring a level of standardization but using uh, digital technology and imaging machine learning augmented intelligence in order to take the next uh, you know really do you know perform the next revolution in surgery but as part of the evolution of surgery so it's a long-winded answer but that's that's kind of the direction <laughs> No, that's incredible. I think the silence is because we are wowed by <laughs> by by the story. I'm I'm curious. By creating this kind of very very new technology um that is less invasive on on the one hand but on the other hand uh is very innovative, how different are the FDA regulatory requirements with which you need to comply from maybe other devices or other solutions. So it is it is different and and I think even the regulators such as FDA are also learning at the same time as we are trying to do this because uh, it, it's relatively new for everybody. Uh, yes, AI technology you uh, you know exists in other industries uh but not so much in in this industry and and when you think about medical devices also it's a very broad industry right you have diagnostics you have medical devices then you have surgical devices i mean there's so many different varieties so i think the regulators are also learning uh but i think they are open they are open to listening and open to understanding uh, logic on why this is does done a certain way and to say this is how it's done in this industry so we used that protocol because it's already an established area and also following international standards right there are international standards for certain electromagnetic interference and immunity and cybersecurity and all of that there are standards so uh, you know even our regulators in our field Uh, try to employ those standards to the best they can right i think you know if we look look for like for last year when uh president biden came out with his executive order that included a lot of the supply chain or he was talking a lot about supply chain cybersecurity and then the pre-market that came out a couple of months ago you know it's it's kind of um raising the i don't know if it's raising the awareness or it's raising the comp- maybe raising the compliance level or it will raise the compliance level for cybersecurity that's required uh you know by medical device manufacturers so what do you see are the security challenges that exist in spite of the fact that your products are minimally um invasive because uh still there are robotics which are i guess that would be considered the medical device in this scenario together with whatever other devices are being used in the surgery So so how do you tackle the these types of security issues and also yeah. of course then the issues from the robotics to the 
where the surgeon is and maybe up to the database where you're comparing the different uh, surgical proceedings and, and, uh, you know, and so on. Yeah, I, I think, David, it's a great question because I don't think there's any one individual or company has a answer to that question because it's it's like i said it's a lot of new things and a lot of things that have to come together so if you think about uh, a robotic uh, kind of surgery the the robot can operate by itself uh, locally doesn't need doesn't need the cloud doesn't need to get on the internet to perform the surgery but now when you try to capture and archive this data that comes from video data and, and robotic data and try to gain insights from this data that can be done locally or on the cloud, uh, probably better done on the cloud than, than, than locally. Uh, but now comes privacy, right? There's patient privacy on top of security uh, of the data. Uh, and, and now you have to process it and now you have to make it available to back to the, the surgeon, uh, or the hospital for that matter, because the hospital might want some of this data. The patient might need some of this data and a medical device company like us, we also need this data. So now you are getting into another area saying, okay, who owns what and who has the right to use what piece? So these are all challenges but then there are you know folks like google and, and amazon and, and microsoft and others who have you know created secure cloud platforms for certain areas and and all of these companies you know we we are partnering with uh, with google they have a separate health cloud infrastructure that they have created and and we leverage that because they have all the necessary controls from a cloud point of view, but that's not the end of it, right? So we now need to convince our customers saying, okay, here's all their controls, here's how we interface with their system, and you know, this is how we believe that everything is secured. Uh, our devices have a good level of uh, security uh, because we have done all the penetration testing uh, per all these different standards. Patient privacy is respected. This is the amount of information we have. And uh, so it, it's an it's a evolving area, but it's a very complex uh, area. And, and I think right now it's very broad. Uh, I don't think there's one standard, but I think over time, as more and more companies try to leverage the cloud for surgical purpose, I'm, I'm just talking purely surgical purpose, because that's going to be different from someone who's using cloud data for you know, disease management like diabetes or something like that, which is going to be very different than surgery. So I think it's a matter of time before each of these areas try to mature and kind of harmonize. But early days, it's going to be very broad, different companies, different hospitals using different methods to work through the challenges here with security. Right. 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 I, I just have a follow-up question on that. So if we take, for example, the robotics, right? One of our customers, they do embedded systems. Uh, they do motherboards, they do ECMs, they, you know, all kinds of internals that I guess would be running the robotics. And one of the things they told me was that their customers now are, are requesting software bill of materials also for the code that's running inside. So I don't know if that's, ha- if, if you're at that point or if that's something yeah. that you see happening also for 
you know, the, the robotics themselves, even if they're, yeah. let's say, even if they're only minimally connected to the cloud or only connected a certain amount of the time, but actually to make sure that the software code that's running inside of the robotics are, there are no vulnerabilities. No, for, for sure. That, that is even for us, it is a requirement. We need to know which pieces are, is it some kind of uh, open source or is it uh, freeware? I mean, you heard the term soup right? You know, software of unknown provenance. So we need to decipher all of that because we need to show that we have run tests on each of those different parts to make sure that it is safe and secure and there's no inherent uh, vulnerabilities within that. So internally, as a company, that is a requirement for us. And the chances that the regulators are going to want to see that we went through a certain checklist for each piece of software uh, is also uh, becoming more of a question that they ask us, uh, saying, what are the pieces? How are they controlled? Under what standard are they controlled? So it is is something uh, that is going to uh, become more and more prominent, but it's happening now. Taking a step back here, I'm I'm really interested in in your answer for for the next question. Uh, you know, being on the forefront of innovation in the medical device industry, you, you're in a very very unique position. So I'm curious, what would you say was the most incredible moment you had in your career in that in that industry? Uh, you know, taking into consideration the innovation you're uh, you're leading now and 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 in the past. Yeah, I think the the evolution of technology, really how fast it, it happened, especially the on the imaging side. Yes, we were able to take an image, uh, look at things and, and analyze it on a computer. Uh, I remember, I mean, personally, I remember doing this uh, about 20 years ago uh, in graduate school. I used to do this in, in taking images and trying to recognize certain things, but it was slow and the accuracy was pretty low. Uh, it was not very predictable. After so many months and years of effort, it was still not very uh, predictable. But things changed. I mean, today, the technology that we deploy, these are off-the-shelf technologies that we've written our own uh, software uh, to recognize certain objects and things like that. I mean, we do this in less than one frame. Uh, so that's like one thirtieth of a second. We are processing a and our data and I mean that that speed and how fast that happened I mean, that really amazes me how fast it has happened and the amount of tools that are available to companies like us from the the technology uh, manufacturers I mean that that really amazes me how fast it has come and how fast it continues to grow and speed up uh, which is really good for us because now we can leverage uh, more and more of this technology uh, to provide better answers and better uh, better solutions. So it's it's really amazing and and really something that we intend on uh, taking the best advantage of uh, as things uh, as the technology continues to evolve and advance. How long does it take to train a surgeon to use the product? Yeah, so for, for our product, uh, David, it's uh, about our training uh, program is a two-day uh, program. Uh, two because days? We tried two days, yes, because we we focus on trained laparoscopic <laughs> surgeons. So we take surgeons who are very familiar with manual laparoscopy, and then our robot is actually built 
to cater to that familiarity. So their muscle memory, their hand gestures, everything mimic what they do in laparoscopy, but they're sitting down instead of standing up. So as a result, we can get a surgeon uh, trained and ready to go uh, in two days. You know, there's some lab portion to it, and then they do a wet portion in a uh, animal facility or something like that, or cadaveric facility to gain a little bit more confidence. But otherwise, because we don't teach surgery, that's the fundamental difference. Uh, the surgeons learn surgery by themselves and through their experience. But what we do is we teach them how to use the system in order to perform the tasks that they are very familiar with. You know, bec- because my son is involved in uh, in these minimally invasive uh, uh, heart, tra- you know, uh, heart valve transplants. It's like uh, I sat with him. I showed him your website. I was just I was blown away by it. He was also. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Uh, I'd say that we are at a relatively early stage and us and others are going to do some uh, very advanced things in this space and and patients are going to benefit uh, overall. So I think we are relatively early stage into uh, the adoption, uh, adaptation of digital technologies. So my next question then is, I guess, uh, you know, based around the topic of our podcast, <laughs> Left to Our Own Devices, the product security podcast, what tips would you give security professionals who are creating devices for minim- minimally um, invasive products? You're the first person we've had on who's actually, yeah. you know, an expert in this, and uh, I'm sure they would like to hear that. Yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing is standardization. You know, trying to find globally recognized standards and and trying to deploy them uh, or if, if if some company has a unique way of doing something try to leverage the standard and take that standard to the next level rather than having something very unique because for companies like us the more prominently more broad use of that specific technology in different, even different industries doesn't have to be, as long as it's in a some regulated industry, for example, if a certain security protocol or security device is used in the aerospace industry, which is a regulated uh, industry, trying to adopt that for us is significantly easier than taking something, a commercial, a commercial product and trying to add all the controls uh, required for it to become a medical device. Uh, so things like that, I think it's very important for any security professional to think about where they can draw from and, and trying to leverage existing uh, regulated environments and, and try to provide solutions to you know device companies like, like us. We, we would tend to, it would be a, it's a lot more easier for us to adopt. Uh, rather right. than having to adopt something and then have to revalidate and retest and redo everything in order to right. make it become more of a medical uh, device standard. So a lot of this is the vetting within the supply chain of where you're getting your components from and, and yes. who you're working with. Right. By the way, did the pandemic uh, have any effect on that? Because I know in certain industries, you know, the supply chain issues, semiconductors in, you know, in the yes. uh, computing industry, other industries, has has that affected your, your business at all? A little bit. 
uh, not a lot but yes we are seeing challenges on in the supply chain re- with re- uh, regard to semiconductors uh, there are certain components that are extremely long lead times and scarce in supply so there are some challenges uh, but it's not made a big impact uh, but it is definitely uh, having an impact on us and have you found that you've gone to needed to go go to other suppliers for part you know for parts or components or where possible yes where possible where, where there's an alternate we can uh, but the challenge is it's a medical device right it's a regulated device so if you make a change then you have to go through a certain regulatory pathway depending on the criticality of the change so it's not as trivial as swapping a part and moving on uh in a other industry we can easily do that you, you lose the benefit of the standardization yes. correct correct so it's not easy to change a component right okay. uh we feel that for, for sure with with our clients as well so i wanted to ask you one last question anthony if there's just if there's anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about uh anything at all really security related not security related <laughs> Yeah now I I I would focus on security related because given the technology shift more and more uh, especially in what we are trying to do to be more data driven and leveraging cloud infrastructure and and trying to be more collaborative and trying to harness knowledge from all over the world in a very distributed way you know security uh, is going to be a very key topic for the future and right now i think there's not a lot of security professionals and and knowledge and stakeholders in the device space who are very fluent in saying okay this is privacy this is patient privacy this is data privacy we can have a distributed system where certain parts can do certain things and, and there's no solid infrastructure yet but it is being developed by certain companies and certain uh, you know the IT uh, companies like uh, Google Microsoft and others so and and then companies like us in industry we are also trying to put certain things together and and even bigger medical device companies have their own infrastructures so i i think there is a big need for consolidation uh, and and a need um, for security in the medical device uh, space and even more importantly in the surgical space for us because it's even a even a different level of a niche not so much healthcare it's it comes under the umbrella of healthcare but it's a very specific niche underneath it so there's a lot lot of opportunity there and i think there's a lot of work that needs to be done and uh, i guess for the security professionals doing uh, all this challenging work i think it's important for them to keep in mind that device companies have specific needs that might not be the same as others so uh, would love to see more and more uh, solutions that are that are going to become more standard that we can leverage in uh, the device space that's great anthony thank you so much for talking to us today uh, i have to tell you it's been one of the most fascinating conversations that we've had in a while the work that you're doing is incredible yeah i've seen it myself so i've seen people who've come home after you know two or three days and they're back at work in a week you know after this type of the type of operation that you're facilitating and now facilitating it with robotics is just uh it's incredible and uh we wish you you know tremendous success going forward and 
I guess once we get past the automated cars and uh, we just actually had um, a delivery service that was put on hold <laughs> because the, it was blocking traffic in the middle of the road because they, <laughs> they weren't always crossing the streets properly, you know. So I think, I think what you said about people having to get used to it and once they get used to it, then we can make the advancements also. And, and I can foresee the same way that, you know, we have uh, follow the sun you know, x-ray examinations or, you know, diagnosis taking place where a doctor will see a patient at five in the evening in one country and by the morning they'll already have the, the diagnosis. And I, I could foresee, you know, round-the-clock surgical work taking place, which, you know, could tremendously also uh, reduce the cost of healthcare for people, which I think could be incredible. You mentioned, you know, India, and, and, and different parts of Asia. And I think it could make a tremendous difference in people's lives. Congratulations. It's a, it's really a, a wonderful thing to be doing. No, thank you. I mean, uh, David, thank you. And, and Shlomi, appreciate you both having uh, me on. And uh, it is a very exciting space and really looking forward to continuing to innovate in this space. Thank you. Thank you. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybello. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.